electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thank you very much, and welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, as Carl said, live today from San Francisco. Front and center this hour, Decision Day and beyond. The Investment Committee making some key moves today ahead of that Fed decision. Now they'll debate where your money goes from here, no matter what happens in a couple of hours. Joining me today, Joe Terranova, Stephanie Link, Shannon Sakosha, and right here on set with me in San Francisco is Liz Young. SoFi, of course. Let's check the markets. Uh, we are in the green, at least for the Dow and the S&P. NASDAQ was. It has, though, uh, turned into the red, as you see. We're watching yields, obviously, today. Ten-year, 432. Oil was a big story. It did pull back. It's higher, though, uh, again, as we come on the air here, 12 noon in the east. All right, Liz, here we go. Uh, Judgment Day. Yeah. See what the Fed says, um, not necessarily what it does and what you all do based on what they say. Right. Well, every time we do this, we say it's the most important one since last time. I think the Fed is in a decent position in fall because the calendar is sort of giving them a favor in the sense that they had a built-in pause in August. They could wait and see what the data said. They've got another built-in pause coming in October. They can wait and see what the data says. Right now, the data does not justify a move either up nor down. It just sort of lets them stay on pause. As of this morning, the market says there is a 0% chance of them hiking. So I don't expect that we're going to get any big surprises today. But what I do think we're setting up for is that a 0% chance today and then only a 45% chance in November is really suggesting that they're done. So if they start to come out and, number one, have dissension among members that say, I think we should keep hiking, I think we should stop, that's going to confuse markets. And if they come out and continue to be really, really hawkish when the market thinks they're done, then we start to see volatility. Yeah, you mentioned 50-50 basically for November and December if they're going to hike again this year. So, Stephanie Link, I, I think the, the words you're going to hear often today from the analysts who come on our air around the Fed, higher for longer. And if that is the case, if it's going to be higher for longer, what does that mean for the strategy that you'd employ in the market? Well, I think it's we've been saying it's going to be higher for longer or is it just high for longer? Um, either way, as Liz just mentioned, I've been saying you're in the ninth inning in terms of this cycle, this tightening cycle. But that being said, don't forget that QT is still happening as well in a very aggressive fashion. And so that will be restrictive in addition to these higher interest rates. So to me, though, I step back, Scott, and I say, you know, the economy so far, so far, we've been able to handle higher interest rates. A consumer has been really impressive and goes back to jobs and to wages and to even retail sales from last week. How about housing? There are puts and takes within housing, but new home sales are up 31.5%. That speaks to demand from the consumer. Even permits yesterday. Single-family housing starts uh, were also up. So there, there are pockets of the economy that are doing well. Manufacturing, we've talked about, because of the $2 trillion in infrastructure spend, the bills that have been passed, that's helping onshoring in that theme. 
agriculture is doing fine. Anything tied to aviation is fine. So adding it all up, you're at above trend GDP, and that is leading to above trend inflation. And I just think that may, maybe they don't go today or in November. They're still battling with a core PCE at 4.2%, and they want that yeah. to be two. So you ask what I'm doing. I'm not really changing. I do like the fa- uh, my style. Um, I, I kind of like the fact that the economy and the strength in the economy has led to less bad earnings. I think earnings are going to recover in throughout the rest of this year and into next year. And we have seen a broadening out in the marketplace. We've been talking about this for months now. So I have had that broadening tilt of the diversification within my portfolio. I'm overweight mm-hmm. energy. I'm overweight industrials. I even liked what some of the financial services companies had said, have said at the, con- at the Barclays conference um, in terms of better net interest income, better, better demand. Oh, by the way, better consumer demand from Bank of America today. So uh, no change in my strategy, but I like the diversification. I think that's much healthier than just having the big seven lead, us, uh, lead the way. Well, you've, you've made a big move um, as well in your book that we're going to get to in just a minute, so don't do it yet. Um, but Joe, you know, to some, it's not so much what the Fed does from here, it's what they've already done and the impact that that is yet to have on the economy and then eventually the stock market. That's what Wolf is talking about. Now, Wolf has been skewed negative for a while. So just put that as a caveat. But they say the next leg down is to be driven by the lagging impact of past rate hikes, the old lag effect of what, you know, Chair Powell has talked about, what many have talked about since the Fed has done, you know, this 525 basis points in 14, 15 months or so, uh, 11 hikes in all. And what it's all still uh, going to mean, Joe? Well, I think, first of all, uh, that's speaking exactly towards what energy prices will do to the consumer over the coming months, and that is it's going to weaken spending, and I expect that the economy is going to weaken. You know, people are focused on oil prices moving higher and the inflationary effect of that. I think the real effect is going to be that consumer spending is going to weaken. So, you know, I I think about today, uh, 10 years ago, my son was stepping on the ice to play hockey. I told him, if you don't move your feet and work hard, I'm I'm not going to let you continue to play the sport. Ten years later, he's still playing the sport, and I'm telling them the same thing. So I think you're going to get that threat, but you're not going to get the actual promise. I think the Federal Reserve has to be hawkish, but I think they're remaining on hold. And I don't think they're going to go in November. And the reason I don't think they're going to go in November is because I do see a weakening economy. I do see a UAW strike that's going to create a little bit of friction for them. And then you also have the potential for an October government shutdown, a low probability, but it is still there, Scott. So I think the Federal Reserve is basically done. Uh, you're going to get a lot of talk, uh, talk, uh, talk, talking that's tough, but I think they're going to sit back and I think they should just focus on continuing to unwind the balance sheet, which they've actually done a pretty good job of taking off over a trillion dollars, taking the Fed's balance sheet back to where it was in July of 2021. So, Shan, you know, I'm going to come to you in just a second, though. I want to get to Steve Leisman, our senior economics reporter, uh, because he's got a hard deadline here because he has to get obviously ready for the events of today. Our senior economics reporter joining us now from D.C. Steve, it's good to see you. You know, it's, it's pretty striking to me, actually. Joe says they're done. I heard two or three guests within the last hour and a half or so that I've been watching the, the coverage suggest Fed's not doing anything more from here in terms of hikes. The question is, are, are they going to be surprised by anything that might happen today? Well, I, I think the story is well grasped by the people around the table there. And being done doesn't mean being easy. 
And I want to put a little nuance on what Liz Young was talking about and what you guys were talking about, about the immediate future and, 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 and the extended future for the Federal Reserve. First thing is just look at the probabilities of uh, future rate hikes. And what you see there is 30% chance for November. And they've transferred a little bit of that angst for a rate hike into December now, a 40% chance. And there, there's that first cut built in, but just barely, with a 43% probability just barely outweighs the possibility of, of, uh, of, of uh, the Fed on hold. Now, let's look at the next thing and talk about what you were just saying, Scott, about the possibility, about the impact of the rate hikes. This is the change in the yield of the Fed futures contract since May, which was a low. Can you see how much incredible tightening has been added to the economy? This has gone along with several things. Massive issuance from the Treasury, better economic growth, um, as well as more rate hikes from the Federal Reserve, and of course, those rise in Treasury yields that's happened over time. The idea is that a lot of restrictiveness has really just hit the economy. So when you think about the Fed, will they not hike, are they done? Yes, they may be done here, but the idea of the Fed being easy is still a long way off, Scott, and in, much in, in, less in, in other words, out there than it was. Yeah, in, in other words, you're, you're underscoring what we said uh, at the outset, too, this, this notion of, of higher for longer. The question I have for you, can, though, Can, I, can Steve, I just amend that, Scott? I think yeah. it's much higher mm, for far for longer. much longer. Yeah. For far well longer. Said. That's, that's well, my new thing. Yeah, um, I love what you said, by the way, and I think that's going to be something that we're going to be talking about for some time. Being done doesn't mean being easy. Right. Um, I, th I thought that was extraordinarily well said. The, the question on oil prices, I'm, I'm wondering how that factors into what the Fed's thinking about not only the impact on the economy, but impacting um, inflation. Oil was $78, Steve, which we looked on the last uh, Fed decision day. So it's up 15 percent, uh, a little bit more than that since then. What are your thoughts there? It's a canon oil drum, Scott, is what it is. The idea being that uh, the Fed has to not finance or monetize this rise in rates, but uh, sorry, rise in oil prices. But the rise in oil prices has nothing to do with what the Fed is doing and is nothing that it's going to do that's going to bring supply back onto the market to bring it back down. All it can do is really remain restrictive in the face of this. One of the mistakes that was thought to have been made in the 1970s was the Fed essentially monetizing as in not being restrictive enough in the face of that high oil price. Now, there is a difference this time, Scott, that we need to think about, which is the idea that so much more of production in the United States of, of, oil, of our oil consumption is from our own domestic production. In the week of September 1, we hit a new record for U.S. oil production at 13.7 million barrels a day. The ratio of domestic production to imports is among the lowest it's ever been. So more of that money stays here. Uh, dividends, I guess, to uh, the holders of oil stocks, that's a big part of it. Perhaps more investment. So there is something of a payback to the United States for our large oil production. But ultimately, for low and middle income consumers, it's going to be a tax that will hurt. But also, it'll drive up those inflation numbers and do more to keep the Fed from cutting than it, had, than it otherwise would have. Yeah, all good points. Uh, Steve, thank you. I'll see you on the backside of the Powell News Conference later when sure. we speak with Jeffrey Gunlock and you join that conversation. We look forward to that, our, our senior economics reporter, Steve Leisman. So I, I guess, Shannon, the way I'd come to you on this now is, do, do you think investors are fully understanding what Steve Leisman just said, that being done doesn't mean being easy? 
No, I, I would say based on the multiple expansion we've experienced this year, Scott, particularly in certain parts of the market, they're not. Um, I think an important point is that coming into this year, many folks were concerned about the potential for declining demand. And we really haven't seen that in terms of the consumer. And we really haven't seen that on the corporate side either. We continue to see investment. Enterprise spend has been stronger than expected in the technology sector, for instance. But what we are facing is on the supply side, the liquidity side, the credit side. We're starting to see those delinquencies tick up in consumer credit cards. We're starting, we understand that much of the debt for corporations, particularly high quality corporations, investment grade issuers, they've termed out their debt. And so they're not facing a necessarily a refinancing wall in the next couple of quarters. But eventually those, those higher costs will come home to roost. And I think the challenge here is as we go into 2024, is there an inflection point where the consumer no longer has that supply? Look at financial conditions. They're really not that tight. So as restrictive as the Fed has attempted to be, there have been other factors that have managed to impress upon financial conditions and keep them slightly looser or significantly looser at certain periods than the Fed would like to see. And so I think looking at 2024, if you look at kind of June, July of next year, you know, we're pricing in, you know, rate cuts in the market over 50 percent probability. That would really only occur if we saw a sharp and a sharp contraction in the economy. The Fed has given themselves some buffer to be more accommodative by the fact that they've raised rates so significantly in this short period of time. However, if you're factoring that in and you're basing your valuations as justified on the expectation for those rate cuts, I have to agree with Steve. I think higher for longer and longer through perhaps into 2025. Yeah. So I've got, you know, conflicting calls. I, I, I suppose you want to call them today. Erin Brown Pimco, she's a frequent guest on, on, on shows on this network. She said a recession, uh, higher oil prices could drive the S&P 500 down fi roughly 15 percent, while Bank of America's Savita Subramania says, don't worry, be happy. That's the, the direct quote from her note. She raises her uh, year-end target to 4,600, and that's from 4,300. So you know where we are in the S&P, but at least a view that we can continue to, uh, to go higher from here. So I mentioned a, some moves at the very outset here. Stephanie Link, let's get to yours. Um, it's a big one. You sold Home Depot. Why? Yeah, I mean, it's flat on the year. It's actually up 18% in the past year. So I've made some money on it. But uh, and I still like this story very long term. Um, you're going to see low single digit comps. You'll see mid single digit earnings. Uh, upside to margins. However, you're not going to get paid for it if rates stay higher for longer, between, especially between now and the end of the year, Scott. If you've got like a three to five year time horizon, I think this is just fine. But I prefer TJX, and that's where I actually have been putting more money to work because I think that off price is in the sweet spot, right? You have trade down, you have excess inventories in the industry that benefits the off pricers, you have the treasure hunt that people like, they like that experience. They have an, a long-term algo of 2 to 3% in same-store sales and margin expansion. Last quarter, they grew 6% in same-store sales and margins expanded over 254 basis points. So I think that, that they have just, in addition to easy comps, they, they just have the wind at their backs at this point in time. I just think that, again, short-term, I'm not going to get paid to, home, to own uh, anything housing-related, even though the housing data that I cited earlier is not all terrible. Yeah, but I thought that the whole reason to be in a Home Depot or a Lowe's was because with mortgage rates north of 7%, you're not going to move, but you're going to improve. 
and and that will be yeah. ultimately beneficial to stocks like this, even though, as you as you rightfully point out, it's done absolutely nothing year to date. Yeah, I don't think you're going to get paid. I don't think you're going to get the multiple. It's traded at, trading at 21 times forward estimates. Even if estimates go higher, multiple probably comes down because rates are higher. So the point is being, it's between now and the end of the year, I am trying to find stocks that I think are really going to outperform. I just don't think that Home Depot is going to outperform in the near term. Long term, really like it a lot, though. Got you. Uh, the other interesting move we have on the committee today is from Joe. As the NASDAQ goes negative late morning, comp services and tech are, are weaker today. You, you teased us, I guess, Joe, the other day that you were going to buy the Qs, uh, and in fact, you did. Why was now the right time to do that? Yeah. Well, I don't know if right now is the right exact time. That's getting into market timing. And if I'm going to say that I'm going to be a market timer, I'm going to be wrong. But I believe this setup. I know, but you know what I mean. I'm not talking we... about 30 seconds from now. I'm talking about why did you do it now? Nope. Well, the setup into the fourth quarter is one in which, when I look at my portfolio, I am basically underweight towards where the outperformance has been so far year to date, which is in the mega cap names. And I truly believe if we are going to see a fourth quarter rally into the end of the year, which I have a much higher probability of that occurring than the market actually reversing and going lower, I think it's going to be led by those mega caps. And that's the risk inherent to my portfolio where I just don't have that exposure. And what's interesting is if you look at positioning, let's take Apple as an example. Apple four months ago had institutional ownership of 71%. The institutional ownership today in Apple is only 63%. The institutional ownership of Apple in October of 2022, when we saw the S&P below 3,500, was 61%. So I believe positioning has certainly been reduced over the last four months. I believe that when I look at my position, I know where my exposure is. My exposure is, is that all year I've underperformed because I'm equally weighted. And these market cap behemoths are outperforming. And I think that's going to be the case going through the fourth quarter. So buying some cues, and by the way, on any further weakness, I'm going to add to the position in the cues because I'm building the position for what I believe is going to be a fourth quarter rally. Not because I believe 2024 is going to be a good year, it's just for a trade at the end of the year. I got you. The question, Liz, is much higher for much for far longer, as Leesman coined as well. Um, is that going to be good for tech, even you know, mega cap names, if, if we do have elevated rates for far longer than we think? The short answer to that, in my opinion, is no. But the market hasn't really priced that in yet. So I think if through the end of the year technicals drive prices and we continue with the momentum where mega cap leads and we are decidedly late cycle and large caps should lead in that particular environment, then Joe will probably have a trade that pays off. If we have some kind of event or some kind of credit deterioration, a pullback in consumer spending or other announcements by companies that lead the market to believe that we're not going to produce the earnings growth that's expected in 2024, then I think that tech and consumer discretionary and communications do have to sort of get with the program that capital is restricted, capital is more expensive, and these valuations aren't really justified. So I, I'm 50-50 on that choice right now. I think that there's a chance that technicals lead us through this, but I also think that we are right in the moment where these lag effects and some of the things about capital restriction start to affect valuations and start to affect the economy. Well, speaking of capital, we're thinking a lot about the capital markets uh, these days, aren't we? Because the IPO window seemingly has uh, been cracked open. 
Oh, we're waiting on another one, the first trade today from Clavio. Uh, that company will begin trading shortly, we think. Deirdre Bosa here, of course, with us, who's been following all things IPOs for us. I mean, there is optimism. How should we view what's going on right now in the IPO market? It's a good question. I've got one eye on Clavio because yeah. we're waiting that first trade. The indication is that it's going to open somewhere between $35 and $37, the price at $30. So another pop, right? This would be the third that we've seen. However, the pops haven't been all that sustainable. We're only looking at two of the blockbuster IPOs, Arm and Instacart. Instacart's down, what, nearly 5% today after, you know, a huge pop yesterday. Arm has been falling every day since its IPO. So yeah, there's Appetite, supply for IPOs has been low. What we're figuring out now is demand, especially from retail investors. These floats are small. Small, right? Exactly. So we have to see how sustainable it is. And if they're already falling, what's going to happen when we get to the lockup expiration, right? And in the case of Instacart, employees are going to be able to sell even sooner. So when you look at it, I don't think it's clear yet. The window has cracked open. Is it going to stay open? I think that Clavio is going to be a better indication of that because this is an enterprise software company. There's a lot more enterprise software companies waiting in the wings as IPO candidates than there are consumer-facing, gig economy apps, even chip makers. So this is going to be really important, and it could be different. This is a company that still has you know big top-line growth of more than 50%. Profitability isn't quite there in the way that you know our and Instacart actually was, so we'll see. But it'll be another important signal. A lot of questions about valuations, um, where they are, down rounds, et cetera, when you talk about you know, Instacart and things like that, where valuations used to be. You suggest that there are still a lot of companies out there that have yet to take their medicine. Exactly. That's key. They have not taken their medicine. Instacart did, right? They valued themselves. They lowered that. They took that down round internally, and then they did it through an IPO. Clavio actually was willing to do that as well. It may actually open higher than that $9.5 billion they were valued at in 2022. That would be an important indication. But you look at the biggest unicorns out there and some of the valuations, you think there's no way. Stripe actually is one that has taken their medicine. It was valued at, I think, around $100 billion, now $50 billion. But the others have not. Chime was valued at $25 billion years ago. This is a fintech company, consumer-facing financial services app. And you just think of what's happened in the public markets. That disparity is so great. There's no way they're going to go public at a $25 billion. They probably know this. And a lot of the companies on this list as well, a GoPuff, a Discord, a Brex, an Airtable, the public markets have changed, and we know that private markets are lagging. That's fine. But if they want to go public, if they want to raise more money, they may have to take that down round. What we're seeing in the question now that's being asked, is a down round such a terrible thing? Um, yes, maybe for the VCs that lost money on the Instacart IPO. Maybe not for the markets themselves. Exactly, right? and it gives them liquidity. And, and, and a bit of a reality check of sort of where we are versus where we were. Um, Bob Pisani made a good point earlier of this, and you, you underscored it here too, uh, the first day versus the after days. Um, and what was a pop turns into a drop in, in some of these cases. We'll see what happens with Clavio. D, thanks. Thanks. That's Deirdre Bosa. All right, up next. Double Dow stock coverage in our calls of the day today. The trades on Nike and Boeing are straight ahead. They're movers today. We're back from one market in San Francisco in just two minutes. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. 
Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. All right, welcome back to the Halftime Report. We're live today from One Market out in San Francisco. Our calls of the day, two Dow stocks are in focus. We're going to start with Nike. Take a look at the stock. It's barely getting a lift today. Uh, It's coming off its third straight day of losses. It's the second worst Dow stock year to date. It's the third worst Dow stock month to date. And it's below its 250-day moving averages. Stephanie Link, you you want me to stop yet or or, or keep going on this? Nothing's new. The stock's down 18% year to date, so I think it's reflecting a lot of these bad, bad uh, things out there. Unless you think it's going to get worse, and I think there are some suggestions, no, I, uh, you know, around the way that that it might in fact get worse, both from a, a narrative standpoint. They question. Here's what they say, by the way, in the note: We're removing. This is Morgan Stanley. They removed their position in Nike. Uh, they say they're removing it due to execution and industry headwinds that are likely to weigh on top line and margin trajectories. Um, that sounds like a prediction that things are going to get worse before they get better for this stock. Really, look, the macro is definitely challenging around the world, but the stock is down 18% year to date, and it actually trades at about 24 times forward, which is at the low end. It's 10-year average is 28 times forward. Why does it have a premium, and why should it have a premium? Because this is world-class company. They have the, they're the number one brand in China. Michael Jordan, that brand is growing at 35% constant currency on a consistent basis. They're going from, they're doing more DTC business, which is margin accretive. I think this company over time has earnings power of something like 650 by fiscal 26. And that's going to be because they actually get EBIT margins to the high teens from 11% today. And how are they going to do it? Lower freight costs, FX, inventory reductions, lower input costs. All those things have been massive headwinds for Nike. And I think that's going to turn it around. And in addition, I think the demand still will stay strong. And I just feel like this is blue chip on sale. It trades at a discount to Lulu. Lulu's at 35 times. I'm, I get it. It's a little bit faster growth. But I think that Nike is just, again, world class, good balance sheet. And I don't think they have execution problems at all. All right, Joe, um, do you want to counter that? Because, you know, this is my bet. This is not you saying it. And, and, I, and I know you're restricted in terms of, of what you can say. My bet is that when you mm-hmm. rebalance your Joe T ETF, that Nike it, it finds its way in the trash bin. Um, but you speak on it because you you said recently um, something that that leads me to believe you disagree with Stephanie Link. All right. So so first of all, Stephanie is defining a fundamental outlook uh, into the future that's positive for Nike, and I don't disagree with that at all. But I do believe that 2023 is a year about technicals. It's about momentum. It is about positioning. I think fundamentals 
really don't sit at the top of the factor chart for 2023. And I think that what, what the entry, first of all, for us into Nike came in April. Why did we enter Nike? And I know, you know, my approach to the market is different than Stephanie, but we got caught up in the technical momentum where the stock rallied from below 85 in October of 2022 all the way above 120. This is a strong company, but it was on the technicals that we got into the stock. And the technicals have deteriorated. They're going to report earnings on September 28th, and I don't see how they're going to be able to reverse it that quickly. There are challenges as it relates to China. We know that. It appears to be troughing. But that trough is not going to reward you, I don't think, as an investor until the coming quarters. And we mentioned Lululemon. And Lululemon is a fair alternative. You know, I had this discussion with Steve Weiss on Monday, and Steve said you can't compare it. I don't know how you can't compare it, because if you're a shopper, you're looking at Nike and you're looking at Lululemon. And if you're a portfolio manager, you look back five years and you see Lululemon up 155 percent and Nike only up 20 percent. You look back the last three years, Lulu's up 33%, Nike's up 15%. I could keep going on with the outperformance of Lululemon. So Lululemon has treated you better as an investor. Unfortunately, in 2023, Nike has lost its technical momentum. I hope they get it back. We're along the stock. On September 28th, I hope Steph's right. I hope the fundamental positive outlook that she's in the future, she sees in the future, it comes to reality today. But I'm skeptical that that's going to occur. And we'll see what we do at the end of October. Yeah, I mean, Steph, this note today, they cite margin headwinds from excessive inventory might persist um, longer. So this is seems to be far more than a technical story, um, like the one that, that Joe sort of lays out. And, and look, to be to be frank, I'm not sure that Nike and Lulu are the greatest comparisons and whether it's apples and oranges. To, to me, it's an it's an easy comparison to make for not so obvious reasons. And I, I don't necessarily think that it's it's Nike and Lulu in, in the same basket. Nike has its own issues. It's a big portion, as you said, from China, which is much weaker than I think people had any idea that it would be uh, as we sit here on September 20th of, of 2023 in the recovery. So I don't know that the Nike story gets gets better uh, anytime soon. Lulu to me is its own thing. It caters to a different customer with a different kind of product, period. So China is 13% of total revenues. And last week, we actually saw some green shoots from China in terms of industrial production and retail sales that were double expectations and from prior levels, from prior months. So I think China is going to recover. It's taking slower than expected, no question. But I think the consumer and the pent-up demand from the consumer is actually going to be a positive going forward. So that's number one. Number two, they do have the number one market share around the world in footwear. There's no question about it, a 78% market share. Number three, the margin story. Yeah, the margins have been getting really, they've been hit hard. And a lot of that is inventories. I'm not going to say that, though, that Nike is the only company that has inventory issues. 
everybody has inventory issues, and those numbers have been coming down pretty quickly. And as that happens, Scott, margins will improve, and freight costs have been a very big headwind for them. That's going to improve as those prices come down. So, by the way, they also have pricing power. So, I get what you're saying. It's not been a good stock, right, year to date, but I do think it's going to be a good stock going forward if I have a 12-month time horizon, and I think that the multiple has come down and it has derated enough that the expectations are low enough that maybe they don't have to put up a great number in, uh, on the 28th. Maybe it's just in line and they're just going to make progress on inventories, and I think the stock probably would bounce on that. Joe, lastly to you, because um, I agreed with Weiss, to be honest with you, on the argument that you guys had the other day. Nike's a footwear company, first, second, and third. L Lulu is like a, a, a specialty fitness apparel and lifestyle company. I don't know why we compare the two. Yeah. We're, I'm just going to, I'm sorry, I'm just going to completely disagree with you. I think, okay. yes, they're a footwear company. Lululemon is also a footwear company. They they're both not are a emphasizing direct-to-consumer. They're not a footwear company. They, have, they sell shoes. They're not a footwear company. All right. Uh, we disagree on that. And, okay. you know, as I said before, as, as a portfolio manager, when you think about apparel, you think about what your potential opportunities are for ownership. And to me, it's Nike, it's Lulu, it's Adidas, maybe it's Puma as well. I'm not so sure about that. I just, you know, I'm sorry. I just disagree with you. Okay. To be continued, I suppose. Contessa Brewer has the headlines for us. Hi, Contessa. Hey there, Scott. President Biden and Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu met in New York today on the sidelines of the U.N. General Assembly. It's their first meeting since Netanyahu returned to power in December. And they both expressed a desire to ease tension in their relationship, discuss their differences, including President Biden's opposition to the prime minister's plan to overhaul the judicial system in Israel. The leaders also committed to work toward diplomatic relations between Israel and Saudi Arabia. West Point is being sued allegedly for considering race and ethnicity in admissions in the wake of the affirmative action Supreme Court ruling. Students for Fair Admissions launched a federal lawsuit against the military academy for setting benchmarks for how many black, Hispanic, and Asian cadets are in each class. The academy did not comment on that litigation. And California water regulators are blocking Arrowhead from bottling San Bernardino Mountain spring water. The board determined the company has been unlawfully taking water from the springs without valid rights. The controversy first erupted in 2015 when an investigation by Palm Springs newspaper, The Desert Sun, revealed the company was siphoning water without a permit that expired in 1988. Here we are eight years later, Scott, and now they're just saying, no, you can't take it. Yeah. Contessa, thank you. Appreciate sure. that. That's Contessa Brewer. Coming up, new exclusive reporting today on Apple's plans to move into retail stock trading. Our own Kate Rooney broke the story. She's here at One Market. She joins me next. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work.
Uh, welcome back to Halftime today from One Market in San Francisco. We have new reporting from our very own Kate Rooney on Apple's potential move into retail stock trading. Kate's here uh, sitting next to me. What do we know here? This is an interesting story that you broke. Yeah, so Scott, thank you. It's great to be here with you guys, by the way, and have you on set and uh, be here at One Market. So this really happened, Scott, in the heyday of the Apple-Goldman partnership. When the credit card was launching, they were talking about launching a stock trading feature on the app. So within Apple, you could think of it in the same way as Apple Pay. The idea, based on sources we were talking to that were inside the room and the, during these negotiations, they talked about this just being a feature. You could you know, use your extra, extra cash on Apple to go and buy stocks. This is 2020. By the time it was set to launch, 2022, the markets had turned. So the people we spoke to and sources were familiar with this said they got cold feet and essentially didn't want people to have losses. They didn't want the backlash of users saying, hey, we used Apple to buy stocks and now we're down 50%. Mm. So they said, scrap it, we're going into high yield savings. And that actually turned out to be a pretty good pivot for them because interest rates helped that product versus we've seen what happened to stocks at the time. There are a couple of things here. Um, number one, sort of Apple's aspirations uh, about where they see part of the future of, of their, their business going from a services standpoint, the kind of relationship they want to have, but also a, a sign of Goldman, too, on how their own retail operations uh, and aspirations have just changed yeah. over the years. Interesting. It does speak to both points. I think on the Apple side, it does speak to their ambitions in finance. It was part of this broader product. So you had the Apple Card launch with a lot of fanfare back in 2019. They've got Buy Now, Pay Later. This was seen based on what sources have told us. And I, by the way, I should mention, Hugh Sun was also a reporter on this story, so mm -hmm. teamed up with him on this. But All we right. were talking to people who said, that inside the room, they were talking about this as just one of the many products that they could launch. So there was a lot of excitement between that Apple and Goldman relationship. We've seen what happened since Goldman has essentially retrenched from their consumer banking efforts. It also speaks to some of the blurred lines between tech and finance. You've got Twitter or X at this point also getting into stock trading and a lot of the hype around retail trading. So it was at a time when they were probably looking at Robinhood saying, why don't we just launch stock trading? It's the hottest thing. You saw the markets going up, and that was during that retail trading renaissance yeah, sure. that Apple looked at it and said, you know, th that yeah. looks easy. <laughs> yeah. If you look, I mean, there are many arcs to look at. Um, the arc of where, let's say, Robinhood was trading in, in 2020 versus where it trades today. I don't remember what the peak was yeah. in 20, but it's certainly not even close to that uh, in 23. So it all depends on, you know, that was a moment in time yeah. that maybe, you know, some companies got caught up in thinking about, you know, it lasting longer than, than it obviously did. And in the context of Robinhood, they have now moved into things like retirement funds. But if it's something that Apple can just launch as a feature, it begs the question of, is trading a company? Is it enough to sustain a company on? Or is it just a feature? And Apple just casually getting into this area and retail trading kind of suggests that you know they do need to add more features to, to keep up with tech companies that might be coming to eat their lunch. They have in the, in the meantime, they've added you know retirement funds and high yield savings, the same one that Apple has. But another sign that big tech is moving into finance and they really want to be the one-stop shop yeah. for, for all, everything. They want a piece of the pie. Yeah, exactly. Uh, great reporting thanks, uh, to you and Hugh, and thanks for being here. Yeah, good to see uh, you. That's Kate Rooney on set with us. Up next, Mike Santoli. He'll join us from the New York Stock Exchange with his midday word. We are back. Look at the Dow. It's up 200. We're uh, less than a couple hours from the Fed decision and then the news conference, and that's what the market's doing at this moment. Dow's good for a little more than 200. Back after this. Hi guys, 
Clavio has opened $36.75, 19.2 million shares. Offering price, of course, $30. Remember, just a few days ago, we were talking about 25 to 27, then up size to 27 to 29. So here we are, $36.75. Let me just get in John Tuttle over here. John, how are you? John Tuttle, vice chairman here at the New York Stock Exchange. Everybody wants to know, what's this a sign of? Is the IPO market actually opening up? We've had three IPOs. They've all priced towards the high end of their range and even above. What's going on? Well, we sure hope so, Bob. I mean, this is a great uh, a, a great opening for our market here with Clavio. You know, pricing last night at $30 a share. First trade here at $36.75, and the market's staying strong there. Still drifting upward as well. A lot of companies are going to be watching the performance of this company. Enterprise software company. A lot of support. A lot of good investors there. And um, and and hopefully this, uh, this gives us a strong Q4 this year. It's been said there's 800 tech unicorns that are sitting out there waiting to go public. A long backlog. A two-year drought that we've seen, and yet investors make it very clear they want profitability, and they generally want lower valuations. We certainly saw that with Instacart as well. Are there enough companies to meet that kind of criteria? Are we actually going to see companies really going public with those kinds of investor needs? We are going to see those in Q4, and they're going to come from a wide sector of the economy, not just tech, uh, which market has been reopening with an opening like Clavio here, but also we're seeing companies from across sectors, whether it be industrial, transportation, logistics related. We're excited about Q4. We're even more excited about 2024. Okay, you saw it, Scott. 36.75 open, trading 36.35. Clavio open, Scott. Back to you. Yep, Bob, thank you. Uh, nice pop there. We'll see what that trade does over the remainder of the session. Mike Santoli, our senior markets commentator, uh, is joining us now for his midday word. So let's move beyond the IPO and look ahead to the Fed. Um, I thought there were two leasemanisms, if you will, today that, that give us food for thought. Um, the idea of much higher for far longer Mike, and whether the markets and investors at large uh, fully understand that. Yeah, I don't know about much higher. I do think that, uh, you know, higher than we've gotten used to, higher than what the Fed, even on paper, says is the long-term neutral or expected normal rate. I think we've tried to internalize that. Um, market has had to catch up a few different times. The long end of the curve seems like it's more or less, you know, there. If you look at the, the two-year note yield, we're above 5%. That does suggest there's going to be a little bit of a slower descent in rates than we've had on the way up. Uh, all that being said, I feel like the Fed's in a pretty good spot right here. They're close to their destination. If the debate today is all about, you know, what's the shape of the pace of, of you know, eventual cutting of rates from the peak level, that's not a bad discussion to be having. It suggests at least, as long as that persists, that, uh, you know, a decent benign economic landing is at least, you know, in the, in the, uh, the, the set of probabilities the Fed is facing. Yeah, the other one being, you know, what, what Leesman said, quote, being done doesn't mean being easy. Uh, right. I mean, that all factors in to how we think about what the market may do relative to where rates may go. Look, to a degree it does. Um, but again, when you get past a couple of three months, I don't think the Fed funds futures are, are have a lot of conviction behind what they're saying about where rates are going to go. I also don't think the stock market is on pins and needles needing and wanting that that rate cut. To, for it to perform, okay? The S&P 500 is higher today than it was before the Fed started raising rates in March of last year. Uh, you know, we're up 200 basis points from October when the market bottomed. Clearly, under the right conditions, uh, a tighter Fed can be okay. We just don't know where the next kind of equilibrium point is between equities and rates. Yeah, we'll see you after the decision on closing bell. Look forward to that, Mike Santoli. Yep. Thank you very much. Coming up, we have our other call of the day on Boeing. Industrial's having an interesting day, a good one at that. We'll talk about that and some of the other stocks on the move today when we come back.
All right, let's get to the second half of our Dow double play. As we mentioned earlier, Boeing today. So Stephanie Link, they reiterate it as outperform. But wow, mm-hmm. uh, they're looking for 34 percent upside to their price target, which they bump. You see it at 204. They think it's going to 274 by the dip. Should you? Well, I own it. And yeah, I would buy the dip. I think the spirit issues, supply issues are short term and they're short term headwind for sure. But the demand in the industry is far exceeding supply. Boeing themselves have actually 4,971 planes in backlog. If you add Airbus's backlog, you have 12,000 planes in backlog for this industry. So the demand is absolutely there. In terms of China, and I know people are concerned about China and China relations with the U.S., they don't need China orders to make the 25-26 delivery targets. So I think that the China news or the concern is overdone. That being said, China will be a big positive to to free cash flow once they get the 85 planes out of storage in China. That's $2 billion uh, for uh, free cash flow for Boeing. So so look, I think the concerns are overdone. You have to be patient with this stock. You have headline news and headline risk, but long term, the fundamentals are really pretty outstanding. Liz, what about industrials? Here, so we talk about sectors that may do well over the the final stretch of of 2023. Well, I mean, third third best sector in the index today, right? And I think that's mostly about the market still pricing in and hoping for a soft landing, and that seems to be the consensus call. So industrials would be a, a likely beneficiary of that. I don't think that that's necessarily the right place to stay or wait this out. Obviously, industrials are a very cyclically sensitive sector to the rest of the economy. I still think that this is a period, particularly through fall, where you want to wait and watch the consumer, you want to wait and watch durable goods, and you want to wait and watch manufacturing. And industrials are so dependent on that manufacturing piece. We've been in a contraction in manufacturing for a very long time. So Mm -hmm. I'm not ready to say that this is a trade I'd be all in. You just sound, I mean, you just don't fully endorse the soft landing outcome. I don't. I don't. I, you know, I don't obvious, think right? this time is that different. And I don't think that we've gotten confirmation that it is. The catalyst is always different. That is true. But the way that it shakes out when you have 525 basis points of hikes, when you have margins that are compressing, when you have what I think is an illusion of pricing power on businesses, I am still not convinced that this is going to end that differently than other cycles. Shan, what about you? Yeah, I mean, I, I, to, to Liz's point, I mean, if you if you're looking at this from a economic cycle perspective, you know, we we've seen inventories increase in industrials and the the valuations are fairly demanding in this space. And so I think you can carve out specific uh, sub-industries. For instance, um, Steph makes a great point in terms of there's an oligopoly uh, in terms of aircraft. And so, and that demand's going to continue. But overall, you would need to see that really that no landing scenario bear itself out for industrials to lead going into 2024. And I think that we should be cautionary just in terms of what the sector has done thus far and that disconnect from an economic cycle perspective. Okay. We'll take a quick break. We'll come back here to One Market and we'll do final trades next. We're out here again at One Market tomorrow here in uh, San Francisco. And Glenn Kacher is going to join us of Light Street Capital. Lots, of course, to discuss with him. I'll get his reaction to the Fed decision, of course. 
But uh, talk about the investments that he's made in big tech, AI, and uh, all things markets. Don't miss that. That's 12 noon Eastern, uh, Eastern, obviously. And by the way, today, closing bell. Uh, as usual, Jeffrey Gunlock of Double Line, the CEO, he joins us on the backside of Chair Powell's news conference. And I hope uh, all of you will join me for that. We'll see uh, maybe not so much what the Fed does, but what it says, what the outlook is, and then where Jeffrey Gunlock thinks the Fed and interest rates and the overall markets go from here, too. So I'll see you in just a bit. Uh, let's do final trades. Uh, Shannon, what do you have for us? Uh, telecommunications. If you look at the communication services uh, sector, it's done very well, but it's very top heavy. And the bottom half of that is really the true telecom names with free cash flow and paying strong dividends. Okay. Stephanie Link? American Express, it's trading at 13 times forward estimates. It historically has traded closer to 18 times. They gave out August loan data uh, last Friday, and actually it was really pretty good. Growth grew 19% year over year. Consumer grew 18% year over year. And small medium businesses grew 21% year over year. Delinquencies are minuscule at this point. I like the valuation. Okay. Joe Terranova? In the industrial sector, Copart, they reported earnings last Friday. The stock fell slightly on that. This is a great opportunity to pick up a quality company that is involved in salvaging cars from the insurance industry. Okay. Um, Liz Young here with me. We, we got your outlook on what you think is going to happen later today. Mm -hmm. You'll be with me as well uh, here on the backside of, of Powell, uh, Chair Powell, to yes, I will. give me the the reaction to what he says, too. So we'll look forward to that. What's your final trade? You have final uh, usually I would say don't trade on a Fed day, but that's not how this segment works. So <laughs> sell consumer discretionary. <laughs> I think the consumer is getting weaker. All right, good stuff. I'll see you on Closing Bell. The exchange is now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. All opinions expressed by the Halftime Report participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Halftime Report participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Halftime Report disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Halftime Report disclaimer. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.